This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Today, I'd like to welcome David Zaring to Knowledge at Wharton. He's a professor of legal studies and business ethics, and he's going to discuss with us his new paper called Shining a Light on the Federal Reserve's Foreign Affairs. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, we sometimes think of the Fed as a largely domestic organization. Whenever we see the Fed in the news, it's about interest rates usually or, you know, what's that going to mean for the economy? And it's you know, closely watched and every, every it's like Kremlinology, right? You, you like yeah. they, they talk in, in mysterious ways and we try to interpret it. And it's usually about domestic issues. But actually, it has a lot of connections, many, many connections to global the global financial system, too, of course. And so you have been looking into that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your research has found, such as around uh, the idea of policy coordination. And I know that the paper covers a lot more than that, but that's a good one to start with. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, People think of the Fed as a domestic institution, and it is. um, And in important ways, our research uh, work I did with I've done with Peter Conti Brown, my colleague in the legal studies and business ethics department, um, has um, uh, focused on one of the ways in which the Fed is really interested in its um, domestic um, uh, uh, pursuits, as uh, sometimes to the um, uh, some inconsistency with the way it deals with its foreign counterparts. But the core of our research is this insight um, that the Fed is increasingly engaged in relationships with other central banks and banking regulators, and that a lot of its foreign policy uh, and domestic policy initiatives are compounded by the fact that it's interacting with these foreign central banks um, and foreign banking regulators. And we also found, when we took a look at the history of the Fed, which is a relatively young central bank, it was founded in 1913, that this uh, interest in foreign affairs and foreign policy was right there at the founding, where uh, one of the reasons to create an American central bank was to sort of take on um, the uh, Bank of England, which uh, had its own sort of uh, currency, global currency of last resort. Uh, And it was something that American policymakers very much were interested in maybe displacing. Uh, And one of the ways they tried to do that was to create a strong or somewhat strong American central bank, which since then has increasingly found itself enmeshed in these sort of foreign relationships. So we know that during the financial crisis that... um there were lots of problems, especially in uh, in North America and Europe, and that the Fed coordinated closely with foreign banks and, and foreign financial officials to basically bail out the world economy is what, what it more or less came down to. Um, that was an emergency, maybe not something that, that was planned or people would have hoped to see, but it happened. And, and now, looking back, I guess some people are saying, are we is our central bank too intertwined with some of these uh, foreign regulators or foreign banks uh, and to to the possible detriment of uh, domestic affairs. That's right. When we think about um, who makes foreign policy in the United States, uh, some people uh, put the leadership of that process um, at the executive branch with the president. And Congress certainly has a role to play in uh, foreign affairs. It declares war. It it, uh, has to ratify treaties. It's supposed to regulate commerce with foreign nations. And one of the 
interesting aspects of our constitutional history has been the tug of war between these two um, parties, Congress and the executive branch, for control over foreign affairs. And what we saw in the financial crisis, as Peter and I uh, document, is that the Fed, um, an institution that's really neither accountable to Congress nor the president, um, uh, it's self-funded. It was created by Congress, but it acts on its own. The president is not supposed to intervene. Uh, there's really nothing quite like it at the federal level. Is no, there? there's, there's It's almost not. a fourth branch. Uh, it's got a, a degree of... Um, Independence from the political branches, which is remarkable, never gets reviewed in court. Uh, the president's not supposed to mess with it. And the current president has um, uh, mm-hmm. been critical of it in a way which has um, resulted in some pushback from Fed officials. Mm-hmm. And it uh, shows up to testify to Congress, but mm-hmm. Congress doesn't hold the purse strings. Mm-hmm. So during the financial crisis, what you had was this really independent institution um, making sure that there were enough dollars out there so that uh, other banks um, – uh, would have access to dollars, the currency of last resort, uh, during the financial crisis. So it uh, did this through um, a pretty tricky maneuver. It extended swap lines that ultimately amounted to hundreds of billions of dollars to foreign central banks, uh, which basically guaranteed them access to dollars and guaranteed them access to dollars at a rate that was predictable and fixed. And then those central banks uh, distributed those dollars to their the banks that they regulated. And it was a way to get dollars in the hands of struggling financial institutions. Um, and, and in many ways, it looked like good policy. The thing that is uh, interesting about it, and we don't want to quibble too much after the fact, is that it was good policy that was justified on something of a legal technicality and that was never authorized by Congress mm-hmm. um, or uh, explicitly supported by the president. Instead, the Fed went out there and uh, spent hundreds of billions of its own dollars mm-hmm. on these swap lines um, and uh, it did it um, of its own accord. So that's why we think it increasingly looks like the Fed has its own foreign policy priorities that may be different from those of Congress and the president. In your paper, I mean, the one figure that, that caught my eye, and uh, you know, obviously it's public record, but I, I didn't realize it was so high, is that the, uh, the, at one point the Fed had swapped currencies worth $583 billion. And that's, that, not, not only is it huge, but you point out you know, by way of comparison, that uh, the entire foreign development assistance budget for USAID is only $22 billion. So just to put it in perspective, it's huge. Yeah, the Fed is an a, a enormous player in international mm-hmm. financial relations um, and uh, dwarfs all the other sort of financial support by um, – uh, by other American regulators. And at some point, you know, something like a quarter of the Fed's balance sheet was devoted, devo- uh, devoted to supporting these swap lines. And that meant that the Fed itself was holding all this foreign currency uh, against which it had promised dollars. So, of course, today everyone would pretty much agree that um, that more or less saved the world economy, or at least Europe and North America, from pretty much tanking, correct? It certainly helped. Uh, yeah. One of the reasons and... Um, Maybe we don't have to get too far into the weeds, but um, there's a uh, one thing the financial crisis revealed to us is um, the importance of the so-called euro-dollar market, uh, which are basically dollars held by uh, anyone, but financial institutions in particular, offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the problem with the euro-dollar market is that the you know the Fed produces dollars and the supply of dollars, but it can't control what's happening to dollars that aren't held in the United States mm-hmm. or affect what it's doing. So um, what happened is that banks um, 
all of a sudden found that they were experiencing a run on their dollar reserves. They needed dollars uh, to support their uh, positions in the euro dollar market. And and that's one of the things that the Fed decided to uh, uh, give to them through these swap mm-hmm. lines. So, of course, some critics might say, well, there was a cost to that. And, you know, what are we doing bailing out these foreign banks? And, and you know, the retort to that is obviously, well, if they go down, you know, that's going to really severely affect our own financial system. So, but I think The point of your paper is more that, um, well, it worked out this time, thank goodness, but maybe we need to have something more orderly set up so that we can make proper decisions in the future. Yes, in some ways, the uh, uh, the swap line gambit um, uh, <laughs> is uh, something like a gamble, a big bet uh, that the Fed took, and it turned out that the bet was the mm-hmm. correct one. Um, and, but one of the things you worry about is whether these sorts of big, one-sided, unhedged bets mm-hmm. are going to uh, you know, turn out the right way every time mm-hmm. the Fed makes them. So that's one of the reasons why you think about oversight. Um, it's also... Um, I think we're sort of sympathetic to uh, Peter and I are sympathetic to the idea that the Fed had a role to play in, in stabilizing the global financial system. But um, and it could be that most people agree with us on this. Uh, but it's certainly the case that, you know, Congress never authorized this kind of um, uh, big bailout of, um, you know, foreign banks with dollars who, who wanted access to dollars. And so there's some real accountability questions that are raised by, um, you know, the Fed's decision here. And, and one of the things that we think it shows is that in some things, not in everything, but in some things, the Fed's are really a cosmopolitan entity. Uh, it views um, the global financial system and economy as, as extremely interlinked. Um, and so therefore, uh, instabilities in one part of the financial system can uh, show up in one country or, or a series of countries and then affect financial institutions all over the world. And this sort of cosmopolitan view of how financing works affects the Fed's view of financial regulation, which it thinks should be done on a global level and and makes it willing to participate uh, in sort of a global regulatory approach to financial stability that, once again, is, um, I think, defensible and uh, in many cases a good idea. But not everyone in this country would agree that that's the sort of thing that our central bank ought to take on. So... um a way to square this circle of the Fed, it's a good policy to have the Fed be as independent as possible, but at the same time, that's not to say it can't overstep those bounds or there, aren't, there isn't some line beyond which they need to be reviewed more closely, which is what you're referring to. So what would that look like? I believe your paper talks about a twice-yearly congressional review, and what would that look like? That's right. So... Um one of the conclusions we have in this paper is that uh, this is a difficult problem to solve because um, uh, on the one hand, uh, one thing that um, we've cherished in this country is the idea that the central bank is independent from political um, meddling. Um, and uh, so, At least until recently. At least until recently, yeah. Um, now uh, that may be uh, – and we're – you know – we think that central bank independence is a, is a worthy goal, and uh, everybody at Wharton thinks that central bank independence is important to a variety of different degrees. Uh, though um, we, we would say that the decision about what to do with monetary policy and foreign relations, these decisions are in some ways 
political to some degree. They're uh, going to affect the way uh, we experience the government's, uh, you know, control and uh, oversight of uh, uh, all kinds of things that businesses want to do. So we want the Fed to make decisions for technocratic, smart reasons. Uh, we think that that's most likely to keep inflation under control, which is one thing that a central bank wants to do. Um, but we also want um, the world and the United States and in particular Congress to have a sense of what it is the Fed thinks about um, its international initiatives and what it thinks are um, going to happen with those initiatives. So that's why Peter and I uh, have a recommendation, um, a way to maybe uh, bring the Fed's central policy out into the light from this sort of hidden shadows in which it's operated in in the past. Um, and our proposal is supposed to be modest and incremental and achievable. And we think that um, that Congress could responsibly ask uh, the Fed's um, vice chair for supervision, uh, who the current vice chair is uh, uh, the head of an international organization that involves uh, financial regulators from all over the world. Um, he should come and testify twice a year to Congress about what the Fed plans to do mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, next six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of disclosure and sunshine, I think, will solve some of the accountability problems that the Fed mm-hmm. faces by um, you know, making the decisions that it's made in the past in a somewhat more... Uh, hidden, not, uh, I don't want to talk conspiratorially, but um, unobserved way. So what happens when Congress doesn't like what the Fed has to say in that hearing? All right. So um, our proposal depends on um, uh, the value of disclosure, uh, which of course comes with some threat that the Congress or the president uh, will respond in some way. Um, but we think that um, so far Fed independence uh, has been a principle that's been strong enough to, uh, you know, it's hard to legis- it's hard to pass legislation. It's especially hard to pass legislation these days. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that Congress could legislate to reverse um, some Fed policy in some ways, uh, we think that that would only be something that would likely to happen when there's a wide um, agreement that what the Fed's doing is bad in some way. Uh, and uh, if there is that kind of wide agreement by political actors uh, that's uh, bipartisan and uh, something that uh, both houses of Congress can pass and the president can sign, then maybe there should be some sort of response. At least the Fed should be aware that um, uh, there could be some sort of response and that it has to think about um, uh, the more politically accountable branches when it acts. So that seems reasonable, I guess. And, and, and uh in, in most cases, it will at least have the uh, the benefit of of airing what's going on and bringing it in, into the light, as you're suggesting. Yeah, this is where we um, rely on um, some of those um, maxims that uh, are associated with, um, I think, Louis Brandeis said that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Right. And it's not that there's creepy crawlies hiding out there and what mm-hmm. uh, the central bank is doing, but... Um, uh, that uh, disclosure is a, a, a good way to regulate, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to things like capital markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our approach is to uh, look to the advantages of sunlight, mm-hmm. disclosure, and communication. Um, and we think that if, if the Fed um, goes down that road, then it's m- much less likely that um, uh, there will be some sort of outraged after-the-fact reaction mm-hmm. to some decision it's made about international um, relations that really don't enjoy the support of a broad array of elected officials. Do you see anyone taking this up? Is there interest in Congress or 
the beginnings of interest? Uh, there is increasingly some effort to um, now that uh, Congress has recognized that um, that our financial regulators and not just the Fed uh, play an important role in um, when they uh, enter into agreements with foreign regulators, that that's a real source of policymaking. Congress has expressed some interest in doing something about Mm -hmm. that. So um, a couple of bills introduced in the last two years have asked uh, federal regulators to come and report to Congress either before they enter into these international negotiations or during the course of those negotiations. And aspects of that uh, are exactly the kind of thing that we're proposing in our paper. So interestingly, maybe you can quickly go through, there's alternatives to your idea, all of which your paper suggests are not really very good ideas, but why don't, why don't you tick through them so uh, uh, listeners and readers can be aware of them? Right. So um, as I said earlier, we're looking for a Goldilocks solution, something that um, uh, gets the Fed more um, uh, public about what it wants to do with its foreign affairs policy, but not something that takes away uh, its uh, you know independence, which we value uh, along with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could imagine um, some less attractive outcomes that Uh, would um, maybe harm the central bank's independence. So an example would be uh, uh, an equivalent to the United States trade representative. Uh, The U.S. financial representative could be a a cabinet-level office uh, appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, who would enter into these foreign negotiations. Um, uh, And uh, that uh, is um, a straightforward way to ensure that the president um, it basically has his foreign affairs um, negotiators all reporting to him. He's got the Department of State, the USTR, and now the U.S. financial representative all um, uh, singing from the same songbook. And the president himself can sort of set up what he wants that songbook to look like. We worry that that might be too much presidential um, uh uh, that might make the president too uh, important um, uh, or that might give the president too much control over what the Fed is up to. So um, this means that uh, the president might want lots of swap lines when it looks like the economy is at risk and direct his financial uh, regulator to do it. Um, and, and that in turn might affect monetary policy where the Fed is um, uh, most uh, interested in staying the course and staying independent. Uh, We can imagine doing nothing, and that would leave the problems that Peter and I have identified, you know, uh, out there somewhat hidden with um, uh, the rest of America and the legislative and executive branches not really knowing what the Fed is up to. Um, Or we could imagine that some of these proposed uh, legislation could go too far. So um, requirements that the Fed uh, set forth uh, or other financial regulators set forth their foreign policy in advance before Congress, uh, take comments from any interested party, uh, present its negotiating position to uh, the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee. Um, This has appeared in some draft legislation, which hasn't gone anywhere Mm -hmm. in some other contexts. And that really would make it hard for the United States to have any sort of give and take mm-hmm. between its financial regulators mm-hmm. and foreign allies uh, or potential allies. Um, uh, instead, it would have to present every um, international effort as a fait accompli. Here's what we agreed to mm-hmm. at home uh, and uh, take it or leave it. And we think that that doesn't give the Fed the flexibility it might need to take on a financial crisis or something like it in the future. So that brings you back to the twice yearly... So, uh, so Peter and I worried when we when we said, well, 
you're calling for more congressional testimony. Is that an exciting um, sort of solution to a problem of accountability? Um, and we, in some ways, think it's uh, the worst solution except for all the others. Right. Uh, it gives you um, disclosure without uh, taking away flexibility and without giving the president or Congress too much control over mm-hmm. over the foreign affairs mm-hmm. of the financial regulators. So what else about all this uh, haven't we talked about or haven't I asked you that would be important for uh, listeners to know? Well, uh, one, I think, interesting aspect of this uh Fed tension uh, in the role the Fed plays in setting forth foreign policy is that it's it it's a tension of some longstanding. And so students who are interested in how the Fed became what it is today, I think might be not not just students, anyone who's interested in how the Fed uh, became what it is today is going to be interested to know that um, it took sort of an effort to finance the Korean War, a Treasury-Fed accord in the 19, early 1950s, uh, where the Fed really uh, strongly stood up for its power to set interest rates in a way that the White House didn't want. And um, in addition to the stuff I've said about why the central bank was set up, uh, that is a, that's a time where the Fed uh, won its independence um, uh, or fought for its independence in a period where the president was um, most interested in um, controlling what it is the Fed did with interest rates. And that Fed independence uh, came back and caused contortions in the United States um, uh, during a Latin American debt crisis in the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, where the Fed's uh, raising of inflation or raising uh, in American interest rates very high to combat inflation all of a sudden led to a sovereign debt crisis where uh, Latin American companies, which had relied on the, the ability to roll over their debt at lower interest rates, all of a sudden looked like they wouldn't be able to um, pay back those debts. Uh, and that, too, created required a, a lot of contortion uh, in the president's Treasury Department. They came up with this uh, this weird creature known as Brady Bonds, mm-hmm. uh, which did address the situation. But there, too, the Fed created a foreign policy problem for the president precisely it t- it because it acted. It took years for them to get to that solution. Yeah. yeah so there no, was, was like horrible economic conditions in Latin America for a number of years before before that happened. Yep. Very, uh, uh, very... Uh, a very creative solution that maybe we would have liked to see a lot quicker than yeah. we did. Um, and, you know, that uh, this was still during the Cold War and uh, Latin American countries on the American side were, uh, you know, pleading for help and were having a hard time getting it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so in other words, um, this uh, problem of Fed foreign policy independence has been a problem for a number of years, and it's it's created headaches for the political branches. That's not to say the Fed never works with the political branches. Um, uh, during the Asian debt crisis of the 1990s, there was a famous committee to save the world, which involved the Fed chair and the Treasury secretary. Um, during the um, financial crisis of 2007 through 2009, there was um, uh, close communication between between the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve. Uh, and so the Fed can cooperate and play ball with um, uh, politically accountable actors, uh, but it doesn't always. Um, and uh, this long um, history of that is, I think, something that um, aficionados of uh, you know, the Federal Reserve might find to be particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't just rely on the big bet paying off in the future. We need something more, more structured and orderly to to help uh, 
Shine a light on the path, the light path. Uh, we like a decision-making process which is um, uh, set forth in advance uh, and uh, mm-hmm. something that um, uh, that's a, often a good way to make decisions. Uh, it's often a way to remove ad hoc or outlier decision-making from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of process-oriented approach, uh, I think, has a lot of advantages mm-hmm. to it. So that's why we, we want to um, set up something where um, everyone knows what's going to happen and how um, communication is going to be made. And, uh, and we think that as that communication is made, that'll make for uh, a better process and more adequately ventilated decisions. Okay. Well, terrific. Thanks for coming in and explaining all of this to us. I uh, appreciate it. It's a pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.